Our Old Covenant reading for the evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 19 this evening. I do want to encourage you, when you're reading at home, to go ahead and read the entire chapter. I understandably broke up uh, this portion of God's Word as um, I thought that a two-hour sermon would be a little bit long. Uh, but, but the chapter actually fits together as a whole, and tonight what we're really doing is introducing the background for the great confrontation between the living God and the false god Baal on Mount Carmel. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation, but they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, 
because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 12 this evening. The Word of our God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. This will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. How much do circumstances impact the way that I walk with the Lord? Uh, That's a difficult and challenging question to ask. Uh, I know what I want to say. I want to say that circumstances don't impact the way I walk with the Lord at all. But I also know that that's not true. Uh, The fact that I have a godly wife and a loving, supporting church makes a big difference in the way that I walk with the Lord, and I realize that There are many people who do not have those sorts of supports in their life. Here's a second and related question. How does opposition from the world impact my relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, it may be that sometimes opposition pushes me closer to walking with Jesus. Um, I think way back when I was an officer in the Marine Corps, there were times when I was on a ship, and I would be the only Bible-believing Christian who was an officer on the entire ship. Now, you might imagine that those sorts of circumstances would make 
walking with the Lord and standing for the Lord more difficult, but I actually found it made it easier because everything was very black and white. And that was a time when I discovered that it's a lot easier to take a clear stand for the Lord, even if it's hard when you know exactly what the right thing is to do, than where we live most of our lives, which is in different choices that are different shades of gray. On the other hand, I, of course, understood that the worst thing that was going to happen to me is I might be a little bit socially isolated or uh, ridiculed. I mean, people do have fun at each other's expense, particularly in the Marine Corps. That wasn't um, restricted to those who were Christians. Uh, But I wasn't going to lose my job. I wasn't going to lose my liberty. And I wasn't going to lose my life for Jesus Christ. What happens when the opposition that we face for standing for Jesus moves from a bit of ridicule to something that would have a meaningful impact on us? Tonight we come to a distinctly evil time in Israel. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel, their very names have come to evoke this idea of people being in crass rebellion against God, living just grossly immoral lives. And so they should. In fact, God himself says of Ahab that he was a worse sinner than everyone who had gone before him in terms of the kings of Israel. As bad as his father and grandfather were, Ahab was even worse. And if you've been with us, you know that it was actually under Ahab and Jezebel that for the very first time, Baal worship actually enters into Israel. And Ahab builds an altar and a temple for Baal in Samaria. They were distinctly wicked as rulers. And in response, the living God through the prophet Elijah pronounced the covenant judgments upon them. And then he brought those judgments to pass. I want to say that in tonight's passage, everybody is experiencing incredibly difficult circumstances even Ahab. Um, At Elijah's word, there's been no rain in the land for three and a half years. Now, you might think that Ahab is the very last person in all of Israel who's going to starve to death. By the way, we ought to be thinking about people starving to death. That's what's going on. And and that, in fact, is true. But we have to think about how pagan religion works. Paganism is very much a quid pro quo sort of religion. You do your religious rites, and the so-called gods... If you're honoring them, they honor you in return. Now that means if there's no rain in the land, but the king is falling down on his fundamental job to appease the gods so that they'll send rain and fertility. That is, the famine that has struck the land actually undermines the very rule of Ahab to a point where the people might decide they want another king. And so Ahab is not only enraged, he is terrified over his circumstances. And in the midst of these terrible circumstances, we witness a diversity of ways in which God's people remain faithful. It's going to be an important thing for you to grasp tonight. There is not simply one way to be faithful in the midst of these problems. In the midst of these difficult circumstances, we're going to see a diversity of ways in which some of God's people remain faithful. We're going to look at tonight's passage under three main headings. First, the wicked king and the faithful servant. Second, faithfulness wears different faces. And third, 
the real troubler of God's people. Let me give those to you again. First, the wicked king and his righteous servant. Second, faithfulness wears many faces. And third, the real troubler of God's people. But before we dive into these three big ideas, the author of 1 Kings is, is going to set the scene for us in verses 1 and 2. So look there with me, verses 1 and 2. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now, this might be an obvious question, but perhaps it's not quite so obvious. Why is the Lord sending Elijah back to Ahab? I mean, if the Lord has punished Israel enough for their sin, why doesn't the Lord just send rain? Why does he send Elijah back? Do you understand that question? If the Lord has punished Israel enough for their disobedience, why doesn't he just send rain? And the answer is vital for us to grasp. See, the Lord wasn't simply punishing Israel. The Lord was seeking to lead them to repentance. And therefore, they needed to have the word of God to go with the deeds of God. Elijah is sent back to help turn the people from their idolatry, to make clear that the Lord is God, and he is God alone. Also, all that the Lord has demonstrated so far is that he is capable of bringing judgment upon Israel. He has demonstrated something to the widow at Zarephath that he has not yet demonstrated to the people, and that is that he is the Lord and giver of life, who, who can bring fruitfulness out of barrenness, who can bring life out of death for his people. Furthermore, if the Lord simply sends rain, what do you think the prophets of Baal are going to do? They're all going to say Baal's revived, right? You know, he, he was neglecting us for a while. Maybe he was under the power of moat. They actually had those cycles in their, their, their religious belief. But now he's revived and he's sending rain. Praise Baal. And so the Lord sends back Elijah to make clear that Baal is not a god at all. And for that, he needs to initiate a dramatic confrontation. But I want you to think for a moment of Elijah as he walks back to confront Ahab. You ever thought about how painful that must have been for him? As Elijah's walking back through Israel, everywhere he looks, he sees barrenness and suffering that is all the direct result of what he had prayed for. I mean, he knew he was praying in the will of God. But he prayed there would be no rain, and there was no rain. Please don't think of the people being just a little bit hungry, or the, the grass being a little bit brown here. Remember that when Elijah first goes to Zarephath, after the creek has dried up, the widow in Zarephath was already preparing for herself and her son to die. If you want a picture of what this is like, think about those pictures on TV that you might see sometimes of People in Ethiopia or something, children starving with their bones sticking out. Uh, the, the type of photos that people use to try to manipulate your emotions to get you to donate to their charities. That's what Israel looked like to 
to Elijah everywhere he went. People were literally starving to death. It was because of his, his prayer. I mean, ultimately, it was because of their sin, but he had prayed for this. But at least he has good news. He knows that God has promised, but he's going to send rain. He has that news with him, but it must have been a terribly painful thing to experience. Um, the other day, I was taking a walk out near my house, and as many of you know, I live near an apple orchard. And everywhere I look, it's green. And there's all this beautiful fruit on the trees. Most of the apples are still small, but you can see where it's all going. In fact, we've had so much rain this year, you didn't even have to water your lawn. And I tried to imagine what it would be like if it was all gone. And I couldn't do it. That's how richly God has blessed us. And as I walked a little bit further, I walked past my local market basket, which has over 50,000 items just in the center of the store. It doesn't count the produce and everything. I have no idea how many different types of milk Market Basket sells, but I know it's more than a dozen. And I think sometimes we are so richly blessed by God that we can't even put ourselves back into the shoes of people who are suffering like this. Well, what Elijah saw honestly would scar us probably for the rest of our lives. Everywhere that Elijah looked, he saw complete famine and starvation, perhaps some things that were even worse. And Elijah knew that in God's will, this is all the result of the drought that he had prayed for. Beloved, being a prophet of the living God is not for the faint of heart. But this brings us to Ahab and Obadiah, the king, and his faithful servant. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Now, we've met Ahab before, and as I've said, Ahab and Jezebel, their very names evoke crass rebellion against God. They were truly wicked people. Obadiah is actually in the role of something like the prime minister. He's over the king's house, which actually means over the national government in some sense. He's a very important person. And yet what we discover in Obadiah is that he's a very faithful servant of the Lord. Obadiah's name means servant of Yahweh, and he was true to his name. Even before we are are, are hearing Obadiah speak, the author of 1 Kings tells us that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Not just feared the Lord. He feared the Lord greatly. And so he took great personal risks. When Jezebel starting to put prophets to death, even though he works for her husband, he hides a hundred of the Lord's prophets in caves in two sets of fifties, and then he provides them with food and water. 
Uh, by the way, I think we have to be a little bit impressed just with his administrative skill. How, how do you smuggle off food and water, well, for 100 prophets, but also for their families, in the midst of a famine and get away with it? I think part of it is probably Obadiah himself had servants who knew what a godly and righteous man he was and were willing to put their own necks out to be part of his plans. Well, we don't want to overinterpret the passage. Um, it is certainly legitimate for the king to want to preserve and care for the lives of animals. But I do think there's a comparison in this passage. Obadiah is seeking to save the lives of the prophets of the Lord. Ahab is seeking to save the lives of mules, right? Animals that would be considered part of his wealth, horses that would be part of his military. Not, not necessarily intrinsically wrong, but it does seem that Obadiah's heart is for the people. Ahab's heart is for his kingdom, that is for his power, Perhaps we should also notice how the Lord's hand against Israel has brought Ahab, the king, to a very lowly place. I mean, if you'd gone back four years earlier, Ahab was not a guy who was going to be wandering around the countryside looking for grass. But now he's looking for green grass personally as though it was spun gold. He needed to save his own neck. He wanted to save his own wealth. Ahab is a desperate man whom the Lord is pressing to the brink of utter despair. So Ahab and Obadiah, they part company, each heading on their own discouraging path. Now, at this point, we witness an encounter between Elijah and Obadiah. And this encounter teaches us a very important lesson. Faithfulness wears many different faces. Let me say that again. Faithfulness wears many different faces. Uh, this has direct application to the way we treat each other in the church and the way that we seek to be faithful to God. So please let that sink into your thinking. Uh, let's first listen in as Obadiah tells Elijah of how fiercely Ahab has set his heart against him. Verses 7 through 10. And as Obadiah was on the way, Behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation, but they had not found you. I think it's intriguing. The Lord has Elijah meet Obadiah first. He doesn't just go and meet Ahab. One of the consequences of this is it's actually Ahab that will come out to meet Elijah rather than the other way around. It, it creates a certain impression about who's more important, at least at this point in history. Elijah's the more important person, but the king of Israel is having to go meet. And if nothing else, that may even be preparing Ahab psychologically to grant the initial part of Elijah's request to set up a contest. contest. 
I'll say more about that in a moment. Obadiah hadn't seen Elijah for at least three and a half years, yet he knew that Ahab had been searching desperately, not only in the northern kingdom, but also in the surrounding nations in a crazed effort to get his hands on this man of God. And so it must have been jarring, I mean, just startling for him all of a sudden, behold, there's Elijah. Now, um, Obadiah may be a very senior official in Israel. I've suggested something like the prime minister, which makes it all the more striking, but he falls on his face before Elijah. Uh, We don't really know what the relationship was like before this, but he truly recognizes Elijah as a man of God. And I think in this place in particular, as God's man in this moment. Nevertheless, Obadiah balks when he hears Elijah's request. You get why he does that. He doesn't just go, great, let's get the two of you together. Right? At your word, Elijah. The reason why he does this is he's terrified that the Lord's going to call Elijah away. And he knows what a madman he works for. He, after all, is hiding a hundred of his prophets, along with family members, in caves. He knows that Ahab has been recklessly pursuing Elijah, not only in Israel, but in the surrounding nations. And so he says, look, if I tell him you're here and then you're not, Ahab's going to put me, his faithful servant, to death. As Walter Meyer observes, though he was a courageous man, Don't skip over that. Meyer's right here. Though he was a courageous man, Obadiah was nevertheless also careful about preserving his life. He did not want to be put to death, which does not detract from his characterization as a brave believer. Obadiah had a genuine concern, one might even say fear, but he would announce to Ahab Elijah's presence Yet the spirit of Yahweh would lift the prophet away. Ahab, who would search diligently for the prophet, would have his hopes aroused, but upon not finding Elijah, would kill Obadiah in a fit of disappointment and rage. That's the type of man Ahab was. I want you to consider one little interesting detail in Obadiah's protest. At the end of verse 12, he says, I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Isn't that a beautiful and a remarkable claim to make? Because it's true. I have feared the Lord from my youth. Apparently, Obadiah had not succumbed to the pressure that was all around him. You know, if you think that you have pressure in your school or in your workplace, I mean, honestly, it's nothing like what Obadiah was experiencing as the prime minister to the most wicked king in the history of Israel, in a time where the king was openly promoting Baal worship. And Obadiah had not succumbed to the pressure. He did not join in the perversion of the true religion that was being promoted, nor did he engage in the worship of Baal and other pagan deities, even though this was being promoted by the king and queen whose palace he oversaw. Obadiah was a true man of faith, Verses 13 and 14, Obadiah says, Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? 
how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. Now, I think the reason why the author of 1 Kings has already told us about this is he doesn't want us to think this is just Obadiah's point of view. This is the Holy Spirit's point of view. This is not an idle boast. This is the type of man Obadiah was. And if we consider Obadiah in more detail, we see some interesting things. Here is this man who fears the Lord, who is one of the most important people in all of Israel. So I ask you to step back, put yourself in his shoes, but take a little time to reflect and ask yourself this question. What should he have done? What should Obadiah have done when the king that he is working for is promoting a false religion in Israel? What should he have done when Jezebel is starting to put the Lord's prophets to death? Should he have resigned in protest? Should he have sought to institute a coup to overthrow the king? Well, if you want answers to those questions, you're going to have to look somewhere else than in the Bible. See, the Bible doesn't give us simple answers to those very difficult questions. Um, the Bible calls us to do, what God calls us to do is to be faithful. And that's precisely what Obadiah does in his own way. In Obadiah's case, we have the Holy Spirit's own testimony that he was a man who feared the Lord. I should add, by the way, if you think that's the only way he should do it, because that's, that's sort of the way Elijah was behaving, everyone has to be faithful in exactly the same way Elijah has, you're going to discover that you have to throw more than Obadiah under the bus. You're going to have to throw Joseph under the bus when he became prime minister in Egypt. You're going to have to throw Daniel under the bus when he became the, the prime minister in Babylon and then in Persia. Right? These are among the greatest heroes of the faith who have ever lived. It is possible for godly, faithful men and women to serve at high levels in the government of wicked rulers and to do so with faithfulness to the glory of God. And as I say, we have the Holy Spirit's own testimony that Obadiah did this very thing. He not only feared the Lord, he feared the Lord greatly. So Obadiah daringly used his position to protect a large number of the Lord's prophets, presumably along with their families. Not only would this require a great deal of courage, as I say, it would have also involved a great deal of organizational skill and undoubtedly the cooperation of other people who were so deeply impressed with Obadiah, they were willing to put their own lives at risk. And we should remember that if Obadiah gets caught hiding the prophets of the Lord, he's not just going to lose his job. Um, he, and presumably his entire extended family, is going to be brutally put to death. This is not sort of the, the sort of man that I want to accuse of lacking moral courage. Trying to decide whether Elijah's way of being faithful is better than Obadiah's way of being faithful is to miss the entire point. They are both faithful. They are both faithful in their own way. The Lord has different things that he wants his servants to do. And so he gives you, not, not just people in the ancient world, he gives you different gifts, different positions, 
different personalities so that in diverse tasks, each of you will glorify God and be used to advance his kingdom in different but complementary ways. Please get that. Don't let the world push you into their mold, but don't let other Christians press you into their mold either. And please don't do that to one another. Well, we should probably say something about the prophets that are hiding. I mean, these are prophets of the Lord, and they're hiding in caves. Surely we could say that they're wrong, right? I mean, they ought to be out boldly confronting the paganism in Israel. And the answer to that is, maybe. See, unlike Obadiah, we're not told how they greatly fear the Lord. But it's not actually a clear-cut issue. After all, one of the things we are commanded to do is to preserve our own lives. Uh, We should remember that the Apostle Paul was let down over the wall in Damascus in a basket to preserve his life. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when he knew that people were out to get him, except at the very end of his life, actually withdrew from Judea to preserve his own life. That's a biblical mandate on our lives. And, And as we keep reading the story, we'll discover under the next prophet, Elisha, this band of prophets, also sometimes referred to as the school of the prophets, will become very useful in Israel as they instruct the people of God, the remnant, not the whole nation, nation's still pagan, but as they instruct the remnant in the ways of the Lord and lead them in faithfulness, right? Just remember that we don't have to decide whether or not other people are being faithful. What we have to decide is whether or not we're being faithful to the call that Jesus has on our lives. But I do want to encourage you to remember this. Faithfulness wears many faces, Perhaps moved by this faithful man's combination of fear and courage, Elijah assures Obadiah in the strongest possible way that he would present himself that very day to Ahab. Verses 15 and 16. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, And Ahab went to meet Elijah. With Elijah's assurance ringing in his ears, Obadiah heads off to summon the king. The great confrontation is about to begin. Verses 17 through 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, we have considered the wicked king and his righteous servant, And also the important truth that faithfulness wears different faces. We now encounter a radical clash of visions. Ahab is the first to speak. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, in most of the ancient world, apart from Israel, that line would have made complete sense. The king, by definition, can't be the troubler of Israel. He's the goal. 
Everything is supposed to serve the king. And so the first thing for us to notice is Ahab now thinks of Elijah as someone who is truly important. But Ahab is not approaching Elijah as though he's a petty thief, a nuisance in his kingdom, or even a murderer. When Ahab looks around at all the problems in his kingdom, he's saying in some way Elijah is at the root of it all. He's not simply a troubler of Israel. He's the troubler of the nation. Now, it's hard to be certain what's going on in Ahab's mind because we're not told. Um, Surely he did not imagine that Elijah in his own power could control the weather, right? The, The reason why there's no rain is Elijah has control over the weather. But it is likely he believes that Elijah is, in fact, a true prophet of Yahweh. Remember that Ahab's a polytheist. When he worships Baal, he doesn't deny the existence of Yahweh, right? He, he, he believes that Yahweh exists. He just thinks Baal's more important. And quite possibly, Elijah has gotten his God, Yahweh, to cause all kinds of problems in Israel. It's his fault. It's Elijah's fault. There's actually another possibility that uh, I think is worth considering. That is, he actually thinks it's Baal who's withholding the rain. And what Elijah has done by promoting Um, Yahweh worship and calling upon Yahweh to bring judgment is he's actually insulted Baal. And the only way that the the dishonor that's been paid to Baal can be met with is for Elijah in some way to get his comeuppance. Perhaps being executed will do the trick. I I think that's a, a, a definite possibility of what's going on in his mind. And if this understanding is correct, Ahab and the other Baal worshippers still don't realize that it is Yahweh who's withholding the rain. They foolishly imagine that it is Baal that needs to be appeased because Elijah has so deeply insulted him. This makes Elijah the troubler of Israel. Well, naturally, Elijah won't have anything to do with it. That's just a lie. He responds, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So the matter is actually pretty straightforward according to Elijah. Israel has rebelled against the living God who delivered them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now Israel's trampling the covenant stipulations, and the Lord is bringing the promised judgments for trampling the covenant stipulations to pass. We've seen before, but this promise of withholding rain was actually explicitly given to Israel in the Pentateuch. They have sown to the wind. They are reaping the whirlwind. The only way out under God's judgment is repentance. That's what Elijah's there to do, to call the nation to repentance. Interesting question, though. Who is the troubler of Israel? Um, This apparently straightforward question actually opens us up to realize an extraordinary political revolution that took place, one of the greatest in the entire history of the world, when God created the nation of Israel and made a covenant with them at Sinai. No one in Egypt would have understood the idea that Pharaoh could be the troubler of Egypt. 
It is only because God gives his law, it is only because God is the king of Israel that earthly kings can be challenged on the basis of them doing the wrong thing. You know, pagans naturally think that the king is the law. Whatever he determines is right. But that's not what's going on in Israel. As Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs points out, at Sinai, a new kind of nation was being formed and a new kind of society, one that would be the, an antithesis of Egypt, in which a few had the power, that is in Egypt, and the many were enslaved. It was to be in Abraham Lincoln's words in the Gettysburg Address, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to this proposition that all men are created equal. Rabbi Sachs adds, indeed, without the covenant Sinai, the Gettysburg Address would be inexplicable and inconceivable. Uh, we should add, as we think, look around in our own day, um, I, I don't think this will surprise you for me to suggest that the West is becoming increasingly pagan again, right? That the degree that people are religious, they're seeing it as ways of manipulating reality rather than worshiping the true God. And as the West becomes increasingly pagan, therefore, we should not be su surprised that governments are moving to become more and more authoritarian, and at the same time as a counterbalance, people are moving toward a more and more radical individualism. Both of those things flow naturally out of a change of religious beliefs. Authoritarian governments, radical individualism, which says nobody can tell me what to do. And as Christians, we need to resist both. Against radical individualism, we have to remember that the Lord calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we are not islands unto ourselves. And against the authoritarian governments, we must say with the apostles, whatever anyone else is going to do, as for me, I will follow God. Now, unbelievers who have been raised in a culture but has been deeply influenced by Christianity tend to take the fruits of divine revelation for granted. They imagine that they can keep the fruit while abandoning the root, Yet over time, this assumption erodes. Now, apart from a renewed commitment to Christ and to his word, we should not be surprised at how our politics is disintegrating before our eyes. It's an important thing for us to remember that the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One, and we are not to put our ultimate trust in earthly princes. And so Elijah sets the stage for the great contest which will mark out the northern tribes of Israel from this time until they are brought into captivity. Now, therefore, Elijah says, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Um, I find it interesting that he's doing this at Mount Carmel. Uh, when you think of Mount Carmel, you think of this confrontation, but... They didn't have this confrontation yet. What's really significant but has taken place at Mount Carmel so far in Israel's history? Well, one of those things is this. When Saul became full of himself as king, he erected a monument to himself at Mount Carmel. How important I am, not how important Yahweh is. I think Ahab has done the same thing. 
So from one perspective, it's right for us to see this great coming confrontation as a battle between Yahweh and Baal, who's no god at all. But there's another acceptable, good, right way for us to see this, and that is Yahweh is confronting kings who make themselves absolute monarchs. He's saying a faithful king is a king who bows the knee to me. It is true that the proposed contest from one perspective is between Yahweh and Baal, but from another it is also designed to show the evil and emptiness of Ahab's reign. As we will see, Lord willing, when we continue this study next week, Ahab quickly agrees to do as Elijah demands. Um, There are probably two reasons for this compliance. First, this would give Baal an opportunity to publicly display that he, in fact, is really in charge. I mean, if, if, if uh, Ahab still believes in, in Baal, this, this contest is good for him. But I think it also allows her to be a decisive confrontation that at least is going to bring a resolution. And that's the one thing that Ahab desperately wants. The current situation cannot go on any longer. Of course, things would not go exactly as Ahab planned, uh, but that's a story for another day. Tonight, we have seen the contrast between wicked King Ahab and his righteous servant Obadiah, whose name literally means servant of Yahweh. Then we saw a critical truth that faithfulness wears different faces. One of the challenges the church has had throughout church history is precisely to miss this point, to think that faithfulness always must look the way that I see it for me right now, to try to press other people into my mold or allow myself to be pressed into other people's molds. I want to encourage you to resist that. Jesus is not calling you to fix your eyes on other faithful men for the sake of following them. Yes, learn from their example, but he's calling you to fix your eyes upon Jesus and to follow him. And if our brothers and sisters pick up different instruments to play, we ought to see that as a beautiful thing. For Jesus Christ is assembling an orchestra, not one gigantic tuba section. Finally, we have seen that the real troubler of Israel is the one who flaunts God's word. I think you all know that we now live at a time in the Western church where simply clinging to the plain teaching of God's word can get you labeled as narrow-minded or much worse, right? You can be seen as someone who's unnecessarily ruffling the feathers in our society or even inside Christ's church. There is a constant pressure to conform to the spirit of this age or to be branded as someone who is troubling our community or even the church. In such an age as this, we need to keep reminding ourselves that faithfulness is success. We don't have to define success in some other way and then try to figure out how to get there. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ is success. And actually, the good news is we don't have to figure it out. We do not need to figure out how to outsmart those who are truly troubling the people of God. All we need to do is take the Lord at his word. And the Lord in his word tells us this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen.